Well, church, if you have your Bibles, please grab them and turn with me to Matthew chapter 6, verses 9 to 15. Matthew chapter 6, verses 9 to 15, the passage that is commonly known as the Lord's Prayer. You know, today is the last Sunday of 2020, and I have to say that I never expected to be preaching basically to an empty room, except for a bunch of musicians and my tech team to keep me company here. It's been an unusual year, to say the least, yet at the same time, I'm grateful for all of these who are making this possible today, and also for all of you who are at home, who are my brothers and my sisters in Christ, who continue to be faithful to the Lord Jesus Christ, praying and asking that we would be allowed to continue to, God would bless us and allow us to continue to worship him and to still sing praises to his name and to have joy in our souls. You know, I think that this, today's passage that we just happened to be on, that is, we, as we have been going through the book of Matthew, is really just perfect for us as we think about ending this year. The question that we're all wrestling with and wondering about, especially as we close off this unusual year, is what should we look forward to in 2021? What should we hope for? What should we pray for? What does the Lord actually want to do with us as a church? You know, it's remarkable to think that I know that Zende, you guys are all listening today, and I'm so glad to see our, this Farsi group that, is, that all of you have come, are listening, participating, and worshiping the Lord and united with us. Those of us who are worshiping in the Russian language community, who are fully a part of us here at Westland Baptist Church, and all of us English speakers, and those of us who speak other languages as well, who maybe don't have a ministry started here, we would never have anticipated this is what the Lord would have done with us in the last year. What will he do with us in 2021, provided that Jesus does not yet first return? You know, the future belongs to our Lord. He reigns from on high. And church, we as a people simply need to commit this to him. So church, it's with this in mind that I would like you just invite you to turn with me to Matthew chapter 6 and follow along as I read this text for us today. Matthew chapter 6, verses 9 to 15. Jesus says, Pray then like this, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. You know, this uh, text known as the Lord's Prayer is perhaps one of the most well-known scriptures outside of the church in North America. You know, actually here in BC, up until 1944, because of the strict maintenance of the difference between church and state, BC public schools actually did not have the public reading of scripture. It wasn't permitted, except for one exception, and that was a recitation of the Lord's Prayer. Now, that changed in 1944 as people experiencing the atrocities of World War II began actually lobbying the government, insisting that, like the other provinces, BC should follow suit and not just be unique and allow for the reading of scriptures and also the recitation of the Lord's Prayer. So, because of public pressure against the exclusion of Scripture, the government actually relented and amended the Public School Act. Section 167 of the act that they amended reads like this. 
All public schools shall be opened by the reading, without explanation or comment, of a passage of scripture to be selected from readings prescribed or approved by the Council of Public Instruction. The reading of the passage of the scripture shall be followed by the recitation of the Lord's Prayer, but otherwise the schools shall be conducted on strictly secular and non-sectarian principles. The highest morality shall be inculcated, but no religious dogma or creed shall be taught. This was BC Public Schools, and it lasted like this until 1989. And when the times changed, uh, the charter had come into full force, uh, something was brought up to the Supreme Court, and basically Bible reading was banned altogether in the schools. However, all this to say is that the, some of you might actually remember this in your time in schools, being here in BC. But the culture has changed, times have changed, and the impact, though, is still felt to this day. Now, I know that it's common for us to refer to this as the Lord's Prayer, but really, I think this should be called, actually, the Disciples' Prayer. In one sense, it's really not the Lord's Prayer because Jesus has no need to pray a prayer like, forgive us our sins as we also have forgiven us. Jesus was sinless. He had no need, actually, to pray this. In fact, the reason that he prays this or models this prayer is because his disciples are actually wanting to learn how to pray, and he's instructing them on how to pray. In fact, it's actually better to call this uh, Jesus, the prayer that Jesus prays in John chapter 17, which we know as the high priestly prayer. That's really the Lord's prayer for his people. So this, I think, really is the disciples' prayer. And the question for us as we read this is, as disciples, if this is what the Lord is modeling to us for how to pray, the question is, what can we learn from this as Christians who are followers of Jesus regarding how to pray? Now, there's three things I'd actually like to focus our attention on in this text, and I'm going to cover them one by one as we walk through this. First one is, in verses 9 to 10, the nature of prayer. The second is the requests of prayer in verses 11 to 13. And then I want to talk about the attitude of prayer in verses 14 to 15. Okay? So let's begin first by looking at the nature of prayer. And I'll begin by rereading verse 9. here. Jesus says, Pray then like this, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Now the then that starts off this sentence here shows that this model of prayer is set in the context of Jesus' words that he gave earlier about prayer. Like if you go back and look at verse 8, you will see that Jesus was explaining to his disciples that their Father actually knows what they need even before they ask. So therefore, they don't actually need to babble like the Gentiles do, but simply bring their request to a God who is benevolent towards them and is willing to listen to their prayers, has a keen interest in their prayers. You're not to pray, says, for public admiration, so you look good, but pray to your Father who is in secret and who hears you and is disposed to want to answer your prayers because of the relationship that you have with Him. Now, in the Old Testament, there are actually a number of passages that actually speak of God as being a father. For example, in Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 6, you have Moses addressing the Israelites, and he says to them, Is not he, that is God, your father? Is not he the one who created you? Malachi chapter 2, verse 10 says this, Have we not all one father? Has not one God created us? Psalm 103, verse 13 says, As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. Now, this is really interesting because you can see in the Old Testament 
that God is actually called Father, but generally speaking, he's called Father by way of analogy rather than direct address. So when Jesus comes and he teaches his disciples to pray and tells them to say, our Father, addressing God directly, this was radical. In the Old Testament, really only priests and prophets and kings were that close and tight with God that they would have this kind of intimate relationship with him. The common person, not so much. But when we come to the New Testament and we see the teachings of Jesus unfold as the church begins to grow and we realize what has happened, all of a sudden you see that the common person becomes a child of God, a son and daughter of the living God, and has the privileged status of being royalty and therefore intimate access to the throne room of God, a level of intimacy and connectedness that Old Testament saints really did not understand or experience as a whole. We are children who have been ransomed by the blood of Jesus. And he has paid for our adoption and drawn us close to God. This is what we actually celebrate at Christmas, right? This is what all of Christmas and our celebrations and things that we do is all about. That Jesus would come as a little baby to be born in humility, to be made poor so that we could become rich and inheritors of the promise. I mean, he was the true son. And yet he gave up his comforts of his palace in heaven to elevate us to the status of royalty transformed us from being enemies to being his children. That's what we celebrate at Christmas time, giving thanks to our Lord and our Savior who purchased us not with gold and silver, but with his own precious blood. That's why we rejoice. That's why we sing songs like what we have just sung all throughout this December season. Now, when we think about the intimacy that we as Christians have with the Father, you have to realize that no religion in the world has this level of connection with God and the people who have come to worship him. Such familiar terms. You know, when you think about, for example, Islam, and you look at the names for Allah, you see names like the way, the guide, the avenger, the judge, the friend, the most merciful, but you never actually see father. In fact, in Islam, it's actually forbidden to speak about God as Father because that's not one of the names that Allah has chosen to reveal himself with. You know, Jesus' teaching here is so radically different. He speaks of God as a caring Father who knows what's in his children's hearts and he wants to address their needs and comfort them in their griefs. See, but unlike earthly fathers who might neglect us, fail us, or even mistreat us, the Father in heaven is completely perfect, will never fail us. His steadfast love never ceases, and he's wiser than even the wisest of earthly fathers. You know, Hebrews chapter 12, verse 10 says this about earthly fathers. For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them. But he, God, disciplines us for our good. Why? That we may share his holiness. You see, what the text says here is that earthly fathers can only do what seems best to them. In other words, they operate according to the wisdom that they have, and it might not always be right. I mean, how many of us have had fathers or know of fathers who taught their children things that they thought were great but really were terrible? Right? That's the limits of human wisdom. But our Heavenly Father isn't like this at all. He doesn't teach us according to what seems best. He teaches us according to what is best. 
That's what makes God so spectacular. God is always right, even when our culture is wrong. God is always fair, even when we might not fully think so. And there is nothing he does to us or for us that is not done for our good. Even tough things in life. And church, we have to ask ourselves the question, and friends are listening, do we actually believe this? Do we believe that God is actually warm and close to us and near to us even as we walk through the valley of the shadow of death? Or do we functionally believe that God is a cold and distant God and is just out there to get us so we have to do something, hopefully to get him to on our side? You know, the King James Bible's language is really familiar to many of us. And it reads, Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. But for many of us, actually, functionally, the way that we live our lives rather independently of God, I think that for us, we actually say, Our Father, who art forgotten, meaningless is thy name. The question for us is that, what has your relationship been like with God in 2020? What about 2019? What about for the last 10 or 20 years? Do you actually know him and love him? And are you close with him? Because that's why his son died. You know, my two-year-old daughter has recently been learning how to talk and also been grabbing my legs and pushing me with all her little might. And she's been yelling constantly, Daddy, play carry! Daddy, play carry! Daddy, play carry! Play carry! And push, 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 push. And when I finally give in to her and go to her and sit with her and her box of favorite little magnetic building block tiles, and then try to build something with her, she looks at me and swats them and says, no, daddy, obviously because I'm doing it wrong. And she takes the tiles away from me, and she sits there building away. And I just sit there and I watch. And then when she's done with her work, she looks over to me expectantly, waiting for applause. To me, for me to tell her what a great job that she has done, obviously because she knows how to build and I don't. I do it wrong. You know, I find it so interesting to think as I've sat there for minutes and hours pondering the nature of like, what am I even doing here? Do I serve any purpose other than to be a paperweight on this floor right now? As I'm watching her, I go look at it, I thought about it, and I realized there's a difference for me working with this little child. You know, when I tell other people in the world, I'm sorry, I have to work, I'm really busy. People in our culture understand work is important. They say, oh, of course, of course, yeah, yeah, please call me when you're available. You know, I, I wouldn't want to interrupt you, you know, sort of in your work. But a little child like this does not understand that at all. It's like, work? No, no. Play with me. That's way more important. And I thought, don't you have something right there, little child? Yes, the work that we have to do is important. But you understand intuitively in your own little soul that relationships, relationships especially with daddy, are far more important. And even all I do is sit there so that you can enjoy my presence and that I can be in yours. Isn't that actually what's more important? Can the work not wait a little bit? You know, I love just this story that's told about um, a Roman emperor, you know, who was uh, coming back victorious from this military conquest. And he's parading all these prisoners in front of him, and the people are like cheering, and the Roman legionaries are holding back the crowd. And a little child actually tries to run towards the emperor and squeeze through the legs of a soldier who actually grabs him and says, you, you can't do that, little boy. Do you know who that is in that chariot? the emperor and the boy looks at the soldier and basically says he may be your emperor but that's my dad 
you know, I, you think about that and I go, it's so sweet, right? Because there's only one type of child that can run through a parade and interrupt it like that. That's the emperor's child. And when you think of us as Christians, is that not what we are? Do we not have access to the emperor of heaven? Isn't what we want the most actually is sometimes when we go to him in prayer to lie there and say, God, I just want you to hear me. I want you to stay there in my presence. I want to be in your presence. I want your sweetness of your presence with me today. You're my father. You know, it's so interesting, right? Because when you think about God, he is so busy running the whole world. But when we, as his children, come running to him, just like my child does, and we say, God, play with Carrie. God, listen to Carrie. Help Carrie. Help me. The father never turns us away and says, I'm sorry, I'm too busy for you. Can't you see I've got a lot more important people to deal with? The father is always there to meet us. He says, behold, I am with you always. I will never leave you or forsake you. The father never says, get in line behind the more important people. He says, you're my child, purchased with my blood. Christian, do you realize the level of access that you have and the privilege you have of calling God as your father? I've stated this numerous times before, but I don't think we can say this enough to think about the nature of what it means to have God as our father. Now, don't misunderstand him. Closeness does not mean casualness. I've heard too many Christians, you know, talk about God or Jesus is my homeboy, right? And they treat God with a sense of almost disrespect as they say things like, yeah, God and me are tight, like he's okay and cool with my sin and all. I'm like, no, he's not. See, mistaken irreverence sort of for Jesus is wrong, you know? And Jesus actually corrects this in teaching us how to pray. He doesn't allow us to become sort of just buddy-buddy with God and treat him with disrespect. He says in the second part, not just our Father, but our Father who is in heaven and hallowed be your name. Now, it's important for us to understand what this means because in normal speech, we don't use the word hallowed. We don't go around and, and, and talk about objects as being hallowed. Most people in our world today think that probably the closest thing that comes to hallowed is uh, Halloween, maybe, or Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows. But really, what the word means is that it comes from this Greek word, hagios, which means holy or like sanctified. So if I were to translate this into a more understandable English, I would say something along the lines of, let your name be regarded or considered or respected or reverenced or treated as holy. That's what Jesus is saying. Our Father, who is in heaven, let your name be honored by all people and respected as holy. You see why that's an important corrective, right? Father has a closeness with it, but a holiness as well that reminds us that there's a quantitative difference between us and God, and we should always respect him in this way. That's the first affirmation that we need to understand here, right? That we don't come to God with distance like work colleagues, but like children, we don't come to God in casual disrespect, but we come to him in deference. The first thing we need to understand about the nature of prayer is who God is. Close, yet one who is to be regarded as holy as well. That's what we need to hold to in our hearts. Now, there's a second thing that we also need to understand about the nature of prayer that we learn about in verse 10. Let me read this again. Verse 10 says, Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Now, this second affirmation here is for God's kingdom to come and for his will to be done. 
And by kingdom, we mean basically the ruling reign of God over this whole earth as well as human hearts. In other words, if you think about it, Jesus' preaching, the main message of it was always the kingdom of God is at hand. The kingdom of God is like this. The kingdom of God, the kingdom of God. That was the recurring theme of Jesus' preaching. That was his main message. And the kingdom we read in the New Testament has arrived in Jesus' coming, continues to grow throughout the whole earth, and one day will be fully complete when Jesus returns in glory. And in that day, Jesus will reign over the entire earth. Sin, death, suffering, and tears will all be gone. They belong to the former age, and none of these things will exist anymore. The whole world will be restored and renewed to exactly what it's supposed to be. And you and I will be able to, as children of the King, live in this perfect world forever. See, this is what we want as true Christians. We want to see justice, injustice stopped. We want to see God's righteousness reign. We want to see his presence here with us. We want to experience God walking with us in the garden just as he walked with Adam and Eve so long ago. We want this world to be made absolutely right. And that's what we mean when we say, your kingdom come. We want God to rule over this whole earth, and we want it filled with people who love him as well. See, we pray not just with an understanding that God is our Father who is also holy and immense and great, but we pray also with the understanding that it's about God's kingdom and his will, his purposes for this world being unfolded here. And we want to see the kingdom grow and expand one life at a time. And we are privileged to get to be a part of this incredible ministry of reconciliation as the church of Jesus Christ. It's so important to understand, right? Because the Christian has to say, may my kingdom decrease, may my bank account decrease, but may your kingdom, God, increase. That's our earnest prayer as believers in Christ. But too often, I think many of us, feel like we're about seeking our own kingdom first and our own righteousness rather than the kingdom of God. And therefore, our default prayer is really, God, I want you to fix other people. Fix what's wrong and make my life happy rather than, God, is something wrong with me? Can you fix my desires instead? Right? That's usually how we pray. God, fix others. Forget about me. Others are the problem. My circumstances are the problem rather than, is it not my desires? You know, I remember reading the prayer of a little child that went like this. Dear God, I need you to make my mom not allergic to cats. I really want a cat, and I really don't want to ask my mom to move out. <laughs> I remember laughing when I read that. I took it down. I got, you know, do you know why it's funny? That prayer is so funny. It's because in the child's mind, the cat is a must-have, whereas the mom is a like-to-have. Some of you are chuckling because you probably prayed that as kids. See, if you have to pick, right, in the child's mind, the mom has to go. I don't want to have to pick, but if anything has to go, it's got to be the mom. But isn't this how we usually pray, right? God, make this suffering stop. God, I really want to be healthy. God, I really want to be rich. God, why did you give me that person to marry? They were so perfect for me. And God, if you won't answer me, sorry, God. You have to move out. That's what the problem is, right? See, you realize that little prayer of that child is really like us. But this is not how Jesus teaches us to pray, right? You know, I love the story that was told of a man named Ivan who was suffering through the horrors of a Soviet prison. 
One day while he was praying with his eyes closed, there was another prisoner who mocked him and said to him, Hey, Ivan, prayers won't help you get out of here any faster. And Ivan apparently opened his eyes and replied to him and said, I do not pray to get out of prison, but to do the will of God. See, the whole world teaches us to pray this way. My name be honored. My kingdom come. My will be done. But Jesus teaches us to pray, Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done. Thy name be honored. Forget about me. See, friends, I'm going to ask you the question is, do you pray the three mys or do you pray the three thys? Which is it? Is it about my kingdom or is it about thy kingdom, O Lord? See, if you pray the three thighs instead, that's the way you've learned to pray. Do you see why you can have joy in all possible circumstances, even if you're in a Soviet prison or gulag? The reason you can have joy is because God's kingdom coming, God's will be done, God's name being glorified has nothing, is not impacted in the least by your suffering or your pain. If your happiness rests on how good you feel, how much money you have in the bank account, of course that will come and go as your circumstances change. But if your goal and your happiness and joy in life is to see God's purposes flourish, then you can take even your suffering and your joy in it to show the glory of God. And in this way, the will of God is carried out and God is magnified and praised. God, nothing can take away your joy if you live for God's will and God's purposes above all else. So important to understand, guys. I know that a number of you might be suffering right now, and this has been an extremely tough year for you. You might even feel like 2020 has made you a prisoner. Worse still with COVID-19. You know what you need to do first? The first thing you need to do is to go before God and say, Father, it's wrong for me to tell you to move out. Change my heart. Change my thinking. Help me to see your will be done. It's very hard one right now, but I know that one day I will never suffer or cry again. And that day will come very quickly because this light momentary affliction is preparing for me an eternal weight of glory that's going to be revealed. So, Lord, please help me today. I rest in your will and in your power. See, that's number one. The nature of biblical prayer. It's God, your name is holy. You're my father. Above all else, let your will be done here. That's the attitude we have to have in our hearts. There's a second thing that Jesus says here. Let's look at number two here, verses 11 to 13. The three requests of prayer, okay? Verse 11 says this. Give us this day our daily bread. This is request number one of daily bread. Now, we as believers are taught here that we are not to worry about our daily provision, but simply to humble ourselves before God who provides for us and takes care of our needs. Now, as Westerners, this is very hard for us to understand as we functionally put faith in our biweekly paychecks, our modern economic system, the stock market, and our huge bank accounts. However, you have to remember that in Jesus' time, the average worker was literally paid every day for their work, and they really didn't have more than maybe any, any savings to fall back on, especially if they became sick. It was absolutely terrible. Now, in many parts of the world today, many people actually still live like this with no savings and simply living day to day in poverty. So this prayer actually was not only very real in Jesus' time, but it's actually very real in many parts of the world. It's we Westerners who are the anomaly. 
Some of you actually come from poor places that are like this, and you remember praying like this at times when you needed God literally to stock your shelves with food. But the truth is, if COVID-19 has shown us anything this year, is that even Westerners should feel fear. I mean, last year, none of us expected this time as we were looking over the virus making its way through China, that the whole world and airlines and the tourism industry would come to a complete halt and people would lose their livelihoods. I think many of us in the modern developed world thought, we're now way too big to fail because we have the internet. We have Wall Street. Nothing can stop us now. Like the arrogant makers of the Titanic who said, nothing can, God himself can't even sink this ship. You all know how, what happened to that. Human beings, our hubris is immense. See, if a little virus could do that to us, we need to realize that the only reason we eat today is because God feeds us. He provides for us and he takes care of us. Jesus reminds us that we are dependent creatures. I know a number of you maybe have suffered setbacks in your lives, unexpected illnesses in the last year that have totally taken away your ability to earn money. Life hasn't gone as it, you have expected. Remember, I remember talking to a small business owner who told me that he would lead his employees in a time of prayer at the beginning of his day. Why? Because he said that if literally if no one called me today and nobody gave me a contract for work, we literally would not get paid. He said, I know what it means, he says, as a small business owner, what this verse actually communicates because I do believe that God feeds me every day. And for those of you who have been in a place where you don't receive a regular paycheck, perhaps you actually understand the reality of this. God, give me this day my daily bread, because if you do not feed me, my bank account, my smarts, and everything like that will not feed me. It's you. It's you. That's what God tells us to pray. In other words, what he's saying through this is pray for your present needs. Bring your present daily needs before the Lord and entrust that to him. Now, there's a second thing that we need to look at in verse 12 here about what we are to pray for. Verse 12 says this, And forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Now, let me just clarify here. I don't think he's talking about money. Okay, This is not about being a Christian, going out and saying, Oh, you owe me money? Well, I guess i got to forgive all of your loans right now. No, I think he's actually talking about debts of wrongness or sin. In other words, spiritual debts of sin that people have committed against us, and sin that we've committed against God. Like, if you look at Luke's version of the prayer, the meaning actually is more clear because Luke actually uses the word forgive us our sins, right? Making it more clear what he means metaphorically here by debts. See, as Christians, it's not just about forgiving loans, but we've got to go deeper than that, but actually forgive the very wrong attacks on our very own person. Things that might legitimately have been wrongly done to us. See, Physical requests, as in the first request, are very important and need to be brought to God. But what's even more important, we realize, is our spiritual needs. To be restored in right relationship with others, but ultimately with God. See, we as Christians understand that our greatest need in this world is to have our sins forgiven before an almighty God. It doesn't matter if we live the best life we have here, but we have to go and face the judgment seat of God without Jesus there to defend us. We'll all die eternally. To have our sins forgiven is what we ultimately need. And not just initially, but day by day as we confess before him and say, Father, help me today. Forgive me of the wrongs that I have done. And help me to walk, not grieving your spirit, but in right relationship with you. You know, I think that we as Christians actually regularly need to review our days, our weeks, and our years for patterns of sin 
And when we find things that are wrong, then they say, God, I'm so sorry. I see now and I repent before you. Help me to walk according to your commandments. Let me not walk back in the darkness that used to once characterize my life, but help me to walk with you. See, what I think that Jesus teaches us here is that we need to see God's provision for us, not just physically, but also spiritually as well. Not just for our present daily needs, but he says also for our past needs, primarily as it regards to our sin. What Jesus is saying here is bring not only your present, but bring your past, the wrong things that you have done, the wrongs that you've committed against others, and the wrongs that others have committed against you. Bring all those before the Lord. Past and present belong to the Lord. Bring them before him. Now look at this, number three, verse 13. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. See, this is a request for God to protect us from sinning against him when we're tempted. Now, I know there's a debate over whether this should be translated as deliver us from evil or deliver us from the evil one. Okay, Both are grammatically possible. But regardless of what it actually is, it ultimately really doesn't matter. Whether it's Satan that brings the temptation to us or that our flesh is the one that responds to circumstances and tempts us, the result is the same. Either way, when we are faced with temptation, either from outside through the devil or through our own internal flesh, the prayer is the same. God, please, I need your help to deliver me from this. I don't have enough power inside of myself through your spirit, through your power, through beholding and enjoying Jesus Christ more than my sin, would you help me to fight against this and not fall into temptation? Deliver me, God. We all need to pray like this, actually. See, the Apostle Paul even understood this because when he was at the very end of his life, in 2 Timothy chapter 4, he says this, 2 Timothy 4, 17, as he was tempted to shrink back from preaching about Jesus and the gospel, he says, but the Lord stood by me and strengthened me so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. And so I was rescued from the lion's mouth. In other words, what Paul was saying is that at the very end of his days, when all his friends had abandoned him and he was alone and he was tempted to apostatize and reject Jesus Christ, guess who saved him? Not Paul and all of his years of learning. He said, but the Lord stood by me and strengthened me and he pulled me out of the lion's mouth. See, even the great apostle depended on God alone to ultimately save him and help him not repudiate Jesus in his last of his earthly trials. You know, one of my favorite songs is a song called Cling to Christ, and it addresses this very thing. And the song goes like this. Father, I can go astray and battle needless fears. Voices tell me I'm condemned and that I can't draw near. But your spirit leads me Homeward with your words of life. Jesus bore my every sin, so I cling to Christ. And then I love the bridge afterwards. It says, it's more than I can do to keep my hold on you. All my hope and peace is that you would cling to me. I cling, God, but ultimately it's you who clings to me. It's so glorious as Christians to think that when I'm too weak, too incapable, too weary. God, you cling to me. I'm your sheep, and you promised me that your sheep will never be snatched out of the Father's hand. See, what Jesus is showing us here through these verses is that when you pray, you are to bring not only your past and your present to God, but you are to bring your future deliverance, your very own future to Him as well. 
Bring all of that to the Father, past, present, and future. But you know, it doesn't stop there. You know what's even more amazing about this section of the text? It's how you see the beauty of God's Trinity shining here. For example, when it talks about, number one, asking for our daily needs, we're actually going to God the Father as our creator, sustainer, and provider. When it talks about forgiveness for our debts or for our sins, we have to go to Jesus Christ, the Son, for that forgiveness which was purchased by his blood. When we're talking here about number three, that is the power to stand against sin, we're actually going to the Holy Spirit for his strength and his power inside of us to live the Christian life. See, what's so remarkable about this is in Jesus' words here, he is showing us that what we have to do as Christians is we take the entirety of our lives, the whole of our lives, past, present, and future, and we bring them actually to the whole of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It's all of life to all of God. That's what we do as Christians. That's how we're supposed to pray. Isn't that amazing to think? Now, before I go on and I talk about the last part here, I, I know I need to say something at this point about something that maybe some of you are thinking about the line, hey, Sam, I notice in this ESV Bible, where's that line that says, for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Now, let me quickly just say, this I know appears in the Old King James Bible, the Russian Orthodox Bible, and Amin told me as well, it's also in the Farsi Bible. And it really doesn't appear in most modern translations of the Bible. And yes, I know there's significant debate about this, about whether this is original or not, but I would just simply say that I think I do agree with the majority of scholars today who think that it's probably not original because it doesn't appear in actually a, a number of the oldest manuscripts of the New Testament. But at the same time, I would say that this particular phrase seems to be drawn from 1 Chronicles chapter 29, verse 11. That is very, very similar. And I think it was probably a doxology that was added early on by the early church to this prayer. Now, most modern Bibles have a footnote saying that this really doesn't appear in the earliest manuscripts, but appears later. But... I don't actually have a problem if people want to pray this because I think it's biblical, 1 Chronicles 29, verse 11, even if I don't think it's original, okay? So that's okay. Go ahead. Pray it if you like as well with it. Now, with that little aside, let me just move on to number three here, okay? The attitude of prayer, verses 14 to 15. Jesus says here, for if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Now these are very, very sobering words. It says, if you won't forgive, your Father is not going to forgive you. And we might ask, wait a minute, is this some sort of salvation by works here? Does it mean that if I want to be saved by Jesus i got to make sure that I go and forgive everybody that I don't like first before Jesus will grant me his forgiveness here. I don't think that's the best way to read this. Okay? And the reason why is, if you look at other passages in Scripture, for example, like Matthew chapter 18, verses 21 to 35, Jesus there tells a parable that's instructive for us about how to read this. It's a parable about an unforgiving servant who basically owes a huge debt worth about 200,000 years' salary to a king and the king, when he begs for mercy, actually forgives him the whole thing. And then this servant goes out afterwards and finds a servant who owes him about 100 days' wages, a paltry sum compared to what he owed the king. 
That servant begs the first servant for forgiveness and that give him time, he'll pay. But that servant actually says, nope, send him off to jail. When the king hears about it, he's furious with the first servant and orders him thrown into jail. Why? Because obviously he did not grasp the gracious forgiveness of his own king. And the way that he treated the other servant really showed that. And I think, therefore, the best way to read this text is, yes, if we don't forgive others, neither will our Father forgive us. Because if we don't forgive others, it clearly shows we never understood in the first place the magnitude of what God has done for us. And we are no better than the unforgiving servant. It's because you never really grasp the, un the nature of how great God's forgiveness is. So if that's you today and you're living in unforgiveness, you're always thinking that another person is a jerk and that you can't bear with what they have done to you, I would tell you to watch out in your own life. Perhaps you are that unforgiving servant. It doesn't matter to me whether you call yourself a Christian, you like these sermons that I'm preaching, you like being around the church family. If this is you in your heart and you have trouble actually forgiving other people, and all you focus on is the wrong that they have done to you, and every time you talk, you're always complaining, and you never think about what you've done wrong, like, you watch out. Jesus is saying, neither will your Father in heaven forgive you. Probably you don't even belong to him. You ungrateful servant who does not recognize the nature of what God has done for you. See, the magnitude of our sin, or whatever people have done to us, can't compare to the immensity of our sin against God. And the, what God has done for us in forgiving us through Jesus Christ always forms the basis for our own forgiveness. It's not we forgive so that we earn forgiveness from God, but on the basis of how God has forgiven us, how can we not forgive others? I think this is a testimony of the New Testament. Ephesians 4 verses 31 to 32 says, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Or Colossians 3.13 says, Bearing with one another and if one is a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. See, Christ Jesus' work on the cross was to reconcile and restore enemies of God to himself. He did this for enemies. So you see why we as a church and people who profess the name of Jesus Christ have to forgive others. And if you're struggling with resentment in your soul towards others and you can't forgive, the truth of it is, friends, you need to really let the gospel sink deeply into your soul and understand the magnitude of what God has done for you. And only on the basis of that can you truly let it all go and forgive others who have done horrible things to you. Do you want to be free of your resentment? The only avenue is through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Friends, can you see why this passage on prayer I said is really, I think, the perfect way for us to end this year, this very strange year? We have no idea what 2021 will bring. We don't know if the COVID vaccine will work. We don't know if the stock market will crash. We don't know if the mutation in the UK will actually result in a worse spread of the illness. We don't know if another virus worse than COVID will hit us in the next few years. The future is uncertain. But you know what will never change if we learn to pray this way? What will never change is God's purposes, His plans. Nothing will ever thwart His kingdom's coming. And if our heart is centered on that, we can always pray with joy and with confidence. 
You know, regarding the nature of prayer, number one, like I said, we can always pray to God, no matter what happens, thy will be done, thy kingdom come. Thy name, God, be regarded as holy. God, you're first, I'm second here. And only when we settle that can we move on to number two and say, God, with regards to these requests of prayer, I bring my past, my present, and my future, the whole of my life to the whole of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit as well. And finally, when we understand that we bring the whole of life to the whole of God, we are to remember that the attitude we are have to have in our prayer is one of humility and of grace. God, I am a recipient of grace. Help me then to be a minister of grace to a world that needs you. And for all those of you who are listening today, let me ask you, where are you at today? I know some of you have tuned into this perhaps for the first time and you're listening to this. And you're struggling deeply right now with resentment and anger towards somebody else or some people. And it's consuming you alive. And you cannot get free from it. It's defined and redefined your whole existence and made you absolutely miserable. You know what Jesus calls to you right now at the end of 2020? He calls to you right now to start your life in 2021 right by saying, God, I put me now second. I get off the throne of my life. I want you to reign supreme on the throne. Help it me to believe that it's about your kingdom, your will, and to regard your name as holy. God, would you work in me through your power what I need to do through my understanding of the gospel for the greatness of the forgiveness I've been given through this gospel of Jesus Christ Help me, O oh God, then to go out and forgive others. I've never understood this before. I've never understood I'm a sinner in need of your grace. Help me to believe that or as a Christian to grasp that once again, God. I've forgotten it. Help me to believe it deeply in my heart and to go out and live differently from now on. Church, friends, and all of you who are listening, let that be your prayer to close out 2020. Learn from Jesus how to pray. Humble yourself before the Lord and lay it all out before him, knowing that he cares deeply for you. Church, as we end today, I would like us all to stand. Just stand wherever you are right now. Just stand. And I'm going to put it up here on the screen, this text of the Lord's Prayer. And I'd like us to read this together as we close out 2021 from 9 to 15. Okay? Slide up, please. Verse 9, pray then like this, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. And all God's people said, Amen.